The text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Over the past several years, we have developed a philosophy of ministry and some theological distinctives at Bethlehem that are not new but are very precious to us. They revolve around three priorities, worship, nurture, and evangelism. And those priorities correspond to three relationships in which we exist, a relationship to God, a relationship with each other in the family of faith, and a relationship with people outside without Christ. This church exists, therefore, for three Purposes or to fulfill three priorities. This banner is in process of composition. By the end of three weeks, there will be three symbols. That one is priority number one. We exist to reflect back to God His grace in worship. Next week, we will talk about priority two. We exist to apply the grace of God in the edification of one another unto love and faith. And in the following week, we'll talk about priority number three. We exist to extend the grace of God to people outside in the form of domestic evangelism and frontier missions. The practical implication of having a philosophy of ministry like this is that we can judge how well we're doing. We can ask ourselves a series of questions like this. Do you delight more and more in the majesty and glory of his name? Does your heart incline to worship God more consistently, more intelligently, more earnestly today than it did five years ago? Are we growing in priority number one? Or you could ask yourself, is your love for your brothers and sisters abounding more and more so that the use of your gifts is being used more and more effectively to bring them to more and more love and faith in the body? Or you could ask in priority three, do you feel a greater burden for the lost today than before? Are your prayers for unbelieving family and neighbors more consistent, more intense today than before? Are you growing, advancing in priority three are the efforts to give a reason for the hope that is in you at work and in your neighborhood less ashamed, more bold than before? Or are you going the other way? Is your engagement in world Christianity 
larger today so that you dream dreams about how to be involved in the final quest of the frontiers in reaching the hidden peoples. Are we doing it or are we moving backward? At least we have a standard of measurement at Bethlehem in the philosophy of ministry that we have laid out. And I'm so glad that it is not new. It is old. It's an old philosophy of ministry. I have no fascination for new things at all. I love it when I can discover that what I'm doing has roots that go back way deep into history. So I was just delighted when I found this quotation. Membership in the church, therefore, involves a personal obligation to promote the objects of the body as expressed in the covenant. These objects are three. The social and united worship of God, the perpetuation and diffusion of the gospel, the sanctification of its own members. The church, thus comprehensive in its scope, looks upward to God. That's why the arrow goes back up. Outward to the needs of a lost world and inward to the processes of sanctification in the souls of its own members. The neglect of any one of these three grand objects of its organization imperils the whole design. Hezekiah Harvey, 1879. Isn't that great? It's old. In fact, it's 2,000 years old because it goes all the way back to Jesus. It's biblical, but... We're such strange people. We may hear something a thousand times, read it. But if somebody were to ask you at work Friday, last Friday, what what, what do you do at your church? What's your church for? What, What is this Christianity stuff? Would you have had the ability in one or two minutes to crisply say, well, we exist for three purposes. We love to worship God and honor him because he made us. We love to build one another up and help each other become more loving and meet each other's needs and make each other stronger. And we exist to meet the needs of people like you who don't believe. But now you can do that. More than likely, you couldn't have done that. It's so simple, though, to say why we exist. So what we do is about once a year, we get explicit about this philosophy of ministry. And so today we focus on worship next Sunday on nurture and the next Sunday on evangelism. And each corresponding Sunday night, we talk about the practical ways at Bethlehem it's happening. So tonight, Dean and I are going to team up for 45 minutes and ask the question and answer it as best we can. Why do we worship the way we do? Walk through the order of service and talk about it. And I urge you in these next three weeks at least, don't be a half a Sunday worshiper. Come in the morning, come in the evening. You won't know Bethlehem if you only know the morning Bethlehem. And you won't understand the philosophy of ministry if you only hear its foundation and implications spelled out broadly in the morning. Let's go to today's focus, worship, and look at our text. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 following. Very familiar. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you and their glory if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There is one main truth that I want to get out of this text and urge upon your hearts this morning. Namely, worshiping God is the duty of every human being. Worshiping God is the duty of every human being. The basis of that truth is from this logical process. See if it doesn't seem obvious. If the almighty son of God should count it his duty to obey the command of his father given in the Old Testament that we should worship, how much more should we mere human beings count it our duty to worship God? Very simple, very obvious. It is the duty of every living human being to worship the Lord God. Let me illustrate with a story. Suppose you're a child, a kid, playing in the street outside the mansion or the castle of the king. Playing in the dirt. And the son of the king comes out and plays with you. He starts playing with you. And it's fun. And after a while of feeling comfortable together, he says, why don't you come on in and meet my father? Oh, no. I'm all dirty. I don't have a noble name. I don't have any idea how to meet your father. No way. I'm scared to death of that place. And he says, look, anybody that is a friend of mine, it'd be all right. Don't worry. Come on. And so you go. And they open the big gates into the yard. And you walk up this long walkway. And as you go, you start thinking, I've never met a king before. I have no idea what to do before a king. This is going to be awful. And your heart starts to beat. And you can see your shirt pounding. But this son of the king has such a sprightly step and such a natural way about him. And he's so happy. You start to relax. He says, well, this may not be so bad. He seems to think it's all right. And by the time that you get to the chamber hall outside the king's chamber room, you feel pretty good. This is going to be all right. And just as you get to the door of the chamber room, something utterly unexpected happens. The demeanor, the expression on the face of the son when he knocks. And here's the deep voice of welcome from the other side utterly changes. The gaiety fades into gravity. Not not grief, not sadness, but gravity as though something weighty were going to happen here. The change, as you watched it happen, wasn't like uh, actors behind the scenes during a play, and they know that they have to come out on the scene in just a minute, and they're back there joking and laughing, and the scene's sad. It's going to be a sad scene. And so they see, hear the cue, and they go, mm, quick, put on the sad face, and go out there. It's not like that. That's sort of artificial. The sadness isn't real. It's just play act. It's more like mountain climbers in a van on the road, curvy road, up toward the mountain that they're intending to scale. And they're laughing, having a great time. This is great. Talking about the old times they had climbing mountains before, rappelling. 
And then all of a sudden, they take a turn, and the mountain that they're going to climb just looms up before them in its majesty. And the silence in that car is perfect. Now, the laughter was real. It was real. It was good. And the silence is real. And it's good. And the sun reaches out and takes the handle of the chamber room of the king and he pulls it down and pushes the door open and his face meets the king in the most natural way. And you stand there and you watch the sun go down onto both of his knees and put his face on the stone floor of the chamber room. Your mother never taught you. You never read it in a book, but you knew what you had to do. And that's what this text is all about. When Satan tempts Jesus to worship him by offering the glory of the world, Jesus could have said, he didn't, he could have said, be gone, Satan, you should worship me, not I, you, I made this world, I'll inherit it, get out of here. He didn't say that. He was the son in all lowliness, and he said, Satan, my father commanded, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. I always have, I always will obey my father. Be gone, Satan. And you know what your duty is, don't you? If the Son of God, who made you, counts it His duty to obey the command of His Father to worship God, then believe me, the creatures of the Son must worship God. It is the duty of every human being to worship God. At Bethlehem Baptist Church, it is the number one duty, the number one priority. The reason I say it is number one and not just one among many is because all other duties, you name any, all other duties are a means to this end. The duty of nurture and edification is not an end in itself. We nurture and edify one another to stir each other up to stronger faith and deeper love. But faith is valuable because it focuses on God and calls attention to his all-sufficiency. And love is valuable because it is the evidence of faith and causes people to glorify God. Nor is evangelism and missions our number one priority. Because the only reason we do evangelism and the only reason we do missions is because we want to gather the elect from every tongue and tribe and people and nation into a worshiping, joyful family. That's the only reason to do missions. Therefore, one duty and one alone is number one. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Let's ask two questions about the duty. In what sense is it a duty? 
not everybody likes the word duty. And what at Bethlehem shall we do to fulfill this duty? What does it mean to call it a duty? I have a friend who's dead, Edward John Carnell, a former teacher at Fuller Seminary, and I love him. He left behind his voice in four major books. I've read only two of them, Christian Commitment and The Kingdom of Love and The Pride of Life. I was reading The Kingdom of Love and The Pride of Life when I fell in, in love with Noel, which may be why it has a special place in my heart, but it is dynamite. The reason I think I love Edward John Carnell is because what I see in his books is such a reality. When he deals with ordinary, daily, homespun experiences, he makes you feel like you're walking on hallowed ground. Nothing is common. God radiates everywhere, from glasses to clothes to dinner to whatever. God's everywhere. He used an illustration about duty that just struck me as absolutely right. Here's what he says. Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. And what she means is this, he says, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. Worship is a must. But not that kind of must. Not the kind of must that says, well, I don't want to, but I will if I must. That won't do for kissing. And it won't do for worship. And the two are almost synonymous. If you read Psalm 2. Jesus devastated the Pharisees with these words, and they were the most religious, worshipful types around in Israel. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's empty. Their heart is not in it. You can't kiss that way. You can't worship that way if you have any integrity. Worship is a duty. It is a duty not just to perform outward acts, but to feel inward affections. It's a duty the way C.S. Lewis wrote about it to Sheldon Van Auken when he said, as you know, Sheldon, it is the duty of every man to be as happy as he can be. And the way Jeremy Taylor spoke of duty when he said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And the way the psalmist spoke of duty when he said, delight yourself in the Lord. Isn't that great? I just love to have an authority over me that commands me, delight yourself in the Lord. It is so great to be commanded to be happy. Is that strange to you? It looks like it's strange to you. Your only duty in life is to be happy, you know. You can't begin to honor God if you don't delight in God. And there's nothing greater in the 
universe to delight in than God and therefore no greater joy than delight in God. Therefore, the only way to describe the Christian life is the duty to be as happy as you can be. It looks as though that's new. There must be visitors in the crowd. Pray. And the reason I say pray is because maybe the reason your faces look the way they do is because you do sense the danger of this teaching. You see, if worship is the number one duty of a human being, and if it must come from the heart in order to be real, and if you don't feel it coming from the heart, you must be born again. Maybe that's why it's strange and scary to hear that to be happy in God is a duty. You must be born again if you would see the kingdom of heaven. You must have a new heart that delights in God rather than the world, you know, to be saved. Salvation is not signing a card. Salvation is not ascribing truth to God. Salvation is not affirming doctrines. Salvation is transformation of the heart so that you delight in God. You do know that, don't you? You've been taught that. You must be born again if that's not your experience, if you would see God any time. Last question. How at Bethlehem shall we go about this worship? Well, tonight we're going to talk about that for 45 minutes in a lot of detail. Why do we do it the way we do it? But let me just spell out very briefly three things here. Number one, we do it together. Psalm 149.1, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the faithful. God commands you to worship in the assembly of the faithful. And I know some of you would say, if you had me alone, but John, I, I can worship so much more deeply and so much more intensely when I'm alone in the woods or by a lake. That's probably true for you. That's probably true. And God forbid that I should take that away from you or that any of my private encounters with the living God should be robbed of me. But ask yourself this question. When you experience God in those moments of solitude in nature and you come away from them, is your heart more inclined to want to be here in the assembly of the faithful worshiping or less inclined? If it is less inclined to want to be here worshiping with the faithful or wherever you worship, you didn't meet God. And the reason I know you didn't meet God is because when you meet God, he does not incline you to disobedience. Does he? When you have a living encounter with the almighty and you come away from it, is your heart more inclined to disobedience than to obedience? And if God commands Sing to me a new song and praise me in the assembly of the faithful. And you feel no inclination to that. Can I not infer you did not meet God? You had an aesthetic experience. You had a psychological high. 
You did not meet God. For he who meets God feels inclined to obey God. So, God bless you in the woods. God bless you by the lake. And God bless us as we gather and bring together what he gave us in those moments. You know, it is a command of love that we should gather here. Because if the highest joys could be experienced in solitude. Now mark this. If the highest joys could be experienced in solitude, the picture of heaven in the book of Revelation would be a solo here, a solo there, and a solo here and a solo there. Instead of millions upon millions of choirs. Why is there in heaven the place of consummate joy choirs instead of solos? And the answer is, thou shalt be happy for all eternity and I'll have nothing less for you. Second, we must worship earnestly. Use the word fervently. Use the word intensely. Earnestly we must worship. Jesus said, the exalted Christ to the church at Laodicea, would that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. From which can we not consistently infer this lukewarm worship turns the stomach of Christ? That's not a too big of a leap, is it? From that text, lukewarm worship turns the stomach of Christ so that he spits. That's a biblical image, not mine. Brothers and sisters, we need to be more earnest, more intense. More single-minded and heart-united in the pursuit of God in worship. Have you ever thought through the implications of Jeremiah 29, 13 for your worship? It goes like this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Does your bedtime on Saturday night say, with all my heart do I seek thee? Does the time of your rising on Sunday morning and the preparation you make for worship say to God, with all my heart do I seek thee? Does your arrival here in this room and what you do during the prelude and your riveted attention during all the acts of worship and your heart participation say to the Almighty, with all my heart do I seek thee? If it doesn't, mark it. Jeremiah 29, 13 gives you no encouragement to think that you will meet God. And if you wonder why nothing happens to you in worship, why you may sit here right now and say, what this guy's all, all excited about anyway? The reason from this text is you haven't sought it with all your heart. You sought it with 10%, maybe 50% of your heart. 
Maybe you got up and whispered a brief prayer. God, give me a meeting with you in worship. But did you seek him with all your heart? Because the text says you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Finally, we will worship expressively. The spirit of worship in this place on Sunday morning is is not what some people are used to. And it makes it very easy for people to draw wrong conclusions. For example, I can picture somebody thinking in their minds, well, they don't announce the hymns so that no human words get in the way of our concentration on God. And they tell us not to talk with each other during the prelude because they want us to be praying to God. And everything that happens on the platform looks like it's been thought through ahead of time so that everything can be God saturated. All I can conclude is that they don't want any spontaneous involvement from me. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. Why do I have to go down five houses to Bethesda Baptist to preach to hear an amen? All right. Thank you. May it continue. May your tribe increase. Look, there is nothing in our philosophy of worship that says when your heart is full and a truth has been sung or has been announced that you love to keep you from saying, mm-hmm, or amen, or right on, or whatever is in. I really mean it. Visitors need to hear the members of this church affirming with your expression, with your posture, with your voice, that you love what is sung and love what is preached, lest they think this is just a one-man show here, and he's just talking, and they're just tuned out. I dream... And I'm almost done. I dream of a day when the doctrines of grace, sovereign grace, are so cherished and the spirit of worship in this place is so deeply shared that we, as though with one mind and one heart, will know the exact moment for utter silence. And we'll know the exact moment for shouts of acclamation and amen. Because the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. And great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens strength. And honor are in his sanctuary. Majesty and glory are in his temple. Majesty. Worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, power, and praise. Majesty. Kingdom authority flows from his throne unto his own. His anthem raise. So exalt Lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come, glorify Christ Jesus the King. Majesty, worship His majesty. Jesus who died, now glorified King of all kings.